Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. First of all, Happy New Year, everyone. Um, it's good to be with you on this beautiful, finally, Sunday morning. I know it's been a, boy, I don't know if you heard last night the storms. Wow. Raging. Um, well, on this new year, as we look at John chapter 3 again, we're going to be spending a number of weeks on this same passage because it is so essential to the Christian faith. It is fundamental. And oftentimes in the beginning of the year, there is a poll that's taken uh, in the United States by the Barna Group. It's a Christian polling organization. And they ask the question, are you a Christian to most Americans in the United States as a sampling? And approximately 80 percent say, yes, they're Christian. But then they ask a subset of that question, are you, born, are you a born-again Christian? And that number drops from 80% to about 40%. And so the question is, why is that the case? Perhaps when you hear the phrase born-again Christian, certain thoughts come to your mind. Maybe you might think of the religious right as a political party. Oh, that's the born-again party. Maybe you might say, oh, to be a born-again Christian is to be a radical Christian, sort of the Navy SEALs of Christianity. But when you read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, you cannot walk away from the reality that Jesus is saying, you cannot be a Christian unless you are a born-again Christian. It's a requirement. It's, it's foundational to be a Christian. So for these next few weeks, I'd like to look deeply into what it means to be born again. This week, I'd like to look at some of the implications, two implications of what it means to be born again. The first is that Jesus implies when we are born again, we realize we were or are dead to sin, dead to ourselves, and there's no way that we are alive. Second is that Jesus implies you can't be born again without God doing the work of bringing you to life. So first, you are or were dead. When Jesus says in verse 3 to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verse 6, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You can grasp Nicodemus's confusion because in his mind, 
To be born again meant to go inside the mother's womb. He saw it physically. And that makes sense. No one had ever described the spiritual life this way. This was very unique. And so Nicodemus only saw it through material, physical eyes. And he asked the question in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I remember when my son Jack was very young, we would share stories about his sisters to him before he was born. And he would often remark, you mean when I was dead? And the, the question was so striking, we had to correct it immediately and say, no, 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 you were not dead before you were born. To be unborn is not death. But Jack's young response, spiritually speaking, is exactly the right response. Before we were born again, the Bible tells us that we were dead. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there's no getting around Paul's words. Prior to being born again, we're dead, spiritually dead. Now that might sound offensive to some of you. To say that if you do not know Christ, you are spiritually dead. But when the Bible speaks of being dead in our sins, it means that we don't have any affection, desire, delight, love for God. Not fundamentally, not truly. Before Christ, before we know him, God is another God. God is no different than worshiping Buddha or Allah or money, or sex, or drugs, or or transcendental meditation. He's just another way. But he's not the way. He's someone you go to if you get sick, or if things go bad in your life, or if you lose your job. That's who you go to. He's just another deity out there, someone to turn to when things don't go well. But that is not born again. We don't desire him. We don't make him the center of our life. We don't delight in him. When you're born again, he is the center of your life. And though we struggle and stumble, and though there might be valleys, we always ultimately turn to him. We always trust him in the end. But when we are not born again, we can't do it. It's just not within ourselves. And so John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. It is just impossible. Jesus is saying people before Christ, that includes everyone in this room, at one point love darkness. Or again, to describe it in the concept of death. And death people, dead people cannot initiate love. You can't love someone when you're dead. It's just not possible. When we think about this idea of the stumbling block of not being able to truly love God when we don't know him, I, can, I think of uh, just moving forward, we'll look at eventually the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus had died. He was dead for four days And some of you have encountered death before. Imagine no embalming, no nothing. And 
Four days after death, it's a terrible sight, horrific smell, the decaying corpse, the body. And so Lazarus dies, he's put into a tomb, and after four days, Jesus is actually told that Lazarus was sick, and he delays coming. He doesn't rush over to Mary and Martha, whom he loved, to help Lazarus, whom he also loved. He intentionally waits for many days to pass so that when he comes and does this miraculous work, there's going to be no doubt that God had done an amazing work. God should receive the glory. And that's why he waits. But what's interesting is the Pharisees' response after Lazarus is raised from the grave. Rather than being stunned and shocked and in wonderment and in awe, you know what they were wrestling with? They said, great, this Jesus, he's going to be more popular now than ever before. We have to kill him. I Consider that for a moment. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and their instinct is to say, he's going to be more popular. We need to kill him. How can you be in that place? Because you're spiritually dead. Because what you see is in the moment, in the present. And when you have no love for Christ, ultimately, everything that matters most to you is your family, your material possessions, your career, your children, your wealth, your reputation, all that you can hold on to, that you can obtain by yourself, is what matters the most. And so even if someone were to rise from the grave, that wouldn't matter. What would matter for you is, how am I going to live my life for myself today, right now? Despite all the miracles that the Pharisees saw, they just didn't care about it at all. They cared more about their own power and their own reputation. And because of that, they despised Jesus. They hated him. Every time he performed the miracle, the miracle didn't change their hearts. It hardened their hearts. It made them more angry towards Christ because for them, the miracles were a threat to their power base. The very Messiah who they were waiting and had read all about in the law, they didn't care about it at all. They actually saw that same Messiah as a threat to who they were and their power. That's what happens with the hardening of hearts. When you're dead, you cannot be changed. Imagine your mom has a gambling addiction. She's sitting at the blackjack table, and she's trying to win the next hand so that your family will finally be able to enjoy life. Sort of the mindset of the gambler is the next hand the next pull of the jackpot, and my life will be changed. And so you and your brothers and sisters, and you're all there, and you're pleading with your mom and telling her, just come home. We don't care about the money. All we want is you. And she shoes you away because she says, I'm doing this all for you so I can care for you, so I can provide for your needs. And as you're pleading with her and saying, no, I don't care about that. I just care about you, she gets more angry, and she shoes you away, and she becomes violent towards you. That's called darkness, the darkness of the soul. That's a hard-heartedness. I know this might actually be tragically, maybe even some of your stories, some of your parents. It can happen. It does happen. See, what seems to be for me, for others, is always in the end for me. 
And it's a lie when I say, I'm doing this for you, and yet my actions reveal exactly the opposite. When we are dead to sin, it's no different. That's when our religious works, our Christian works, can be nothing but self-worship. It's an idolatry. We say it's for God, no different than us saying to this gambling mom. And yet, we're really lying to ourselves. It really is for me. You know, the, if you can just imagine the overbearing father screaming at his son for striking out because he needs to be a major leaguer, and this is all for you. This is so that you're going to secede. And so he's screaming and cursing him out, and, and the little boy is crying, but I'm only three years old. I'm, I can't do it, and he's screaming. But it's for you, son. What a lie. But that caricature is exactly what it's like when we worship our Father in heaven and we say, this is for you, but our hearts are so far. And it's all a show. It's all about a reputation, about a morality. The Apostle Paul describes this heart well in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you are, those who are in the flesh is another way of saying you're not born again. If you're not born again, the actions that you perform cannot please God. God doesn't actually care about the actions. That's why you read passages like Isaiah 58 and the people of Israel are fasting and God says, I despise your feasts, your fasts. I, I hate it. When people are worshiping with song and in temple, and God says, I hate your lip service. Don't raise your hands to me. It's not that God doesn't want worship. He just wants your heart that actually is inspiring you, pushing you, pressing you forward. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He knew the law of God very well. I mean, he tried his best. He's actually a good man and all considering, as we see, him coming to Jesus at this time is very different than the other Pharisees. So one thing we know is he's earnest. He's sincere. He knows the law very well. He probably tithed, probably gave to the poor. He was probably a good family man, a good father, a good husband. But all of that cannot please God because he's not born again. And Jesus is telling him that this is not good enough. You'll never truly know God. And this is for a man whose whole life is all about trying to know God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor, he says this, you cannot begin to grow and to discover what is necessary to stimulate growth and development and increase unless you have the seed of life in you. This is a common error and it is obviously a basic and fundamental one. The seed of life, being born again, if that's not in you, then you cannot grow. And so it's not to say we shouldn't read the Bible or pray or attend worship on Sundays or give to the poor or go on missions. But I am under no illusion to think that if you go on missions, then that's what saves you. If you read the Bible and read it and you made a New Year's resolution, that's what saves you. The scriptures telling us Martin Lloyd-Jones is right you cannot begin to grow and discover what is necessary to stimulate growth. 
You have to have the seed of life. You have to be born again. And when you're born again, then God's word nourishes that seed of life. So it's no wonder when you're reading the Bible and it is dreadfully boring, but you're doing it because you feel obligated to do it because you've been taught to do that in gospel train or by your parents. Maybe you're a pastor's kid and you think, oh, I have to do this because if I don't, then my dad will look really bad. If I'm not going to, and I won't talk to my kids, talk to Kenny. He's a pastor's kid. And I know some of you, Peter, Choi, you are as well. And I know some of you are as well. You know, there's, there's a temptation that many pastor's kids face. It's what's well, the, actually the pastor faces it, which is I am concerned about how my kids act because all of you are watching my kids. And so if they act up, then it looks really bad on me. So you guys all better behave. And I'm sure Kenny faced that and Peter faced that. And some of you are pastor's kids. But if that's the motivation upon which we obey or have morality, that just will never save anyone. It won't change a person. And you can look all great on the outside, but on the inside, it's still corrupt. It's still dead. Trying to grow as a Christian without being born again, it's absolutely futile. You can't do it. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 3, again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, think about this. He's telling Nicodemus, a ruler of the law, teacher of the law, this. He's saying, you know what? All the things that you're doing in teaching and in studying scripture and reading it, you you cannot do it for God if you're not born again. And he's thinking, but I've been doing this my whole life. How can you say that to me? Well, Jesus is saying it's true. This means that you can be a pastor and not be born again. That's scary. You can be a missionary. You can be a church leader and not be born again. Like Nicodemus, like the Pharisees, they were doing kingdom work without doing kingdom work. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, spiritual growth, grace, freedom, it is impossible without being born again. If you are regularly serving the church or here each Sunday, but you are not growing, maybe, just maybe, you need to ask the question, am I born again? I had a friend who was a pastor and he would ask quite often people in the church who was attending good friends of his for the long time, he'd ask them, are you a Christian? And he'd ask them, are you born again? And he never assumed that someone who had been attending the church for a long time was born again. Or if they're even an elder, are you born again? Now you might think, why would you do that? But I appreciate what John Piper says is every Sunday he preaches so that everyone would be saved because you just don't know. There are pastors, missionaries, preachers, elders, leaders, who are in hell today because outwardly they said, I'm serving the Lord, but inwardly they were not born again. And know that that is a real possibility. So we should ask the question, am I born again? I hope for some of you, after hearing this message today, you ask that question to yourself and you can say, yes, I am born again. And it's because... 
you know you have a desire for Christ. You know that even though sometimes it is hard, sometimes there are doubts, but through it all, you still ultimately trust him and you place your hope in him. But if you ask the question to yourself, am I born again? And the answer is, I don't know. Or maybe, no, I'm not. My friends, don't be discouraged. If you ask that question and you can honestly say, I am not born again, that is a safer place than to say, yes, I am, when in reality you're not. And now you might be thinking, well, how can that be? The most dangerous place of all is to be in utter denial because the Pharisees had that heart. They said, we're totally fine. We are with the Lord. We study God's word. We have a long heritage of faith. Our parents and our, our parents are Abraham. We're children of Abraham. They were so blinded to their own sinfulness that they couldn't even imagine that they were possibly not saved. And because of that place, they were utterly hardened of heart, so much so that they couldn't even see that this man, Lazarus, rises from the grave. And they were more concerned about, oh, great, now Jesus is going to be more popular than us. It is possible to be in that place. So my friends, do not take offense when someone asks you, are you born again? Because your life doesn't exhibit faith. In fact, that's a blessing and a grace when someone is deeply concerned enough for you so much that they actually are willing to ask the hard question, are you a Christian? Do you know Christ? And if you're really in the Lord, or if you're genuinely seeking like Nicodemus, rather than taking offense, we're wanting to know, well, what do you mean? Help me to understand this. This is a good place to be in, to ask the question like Nicodemus, what must I do to be born again? And that question, we're going to talk a lot more about that in, in the coming weeks. You want to be like Nicodemus. You do not want to be like the Pharisees. Both of them were not born again. But there's a big difference between the two. Nicodemus, not born again, but wanting to know more. Wanting to understand. Not understanding, but wanting to understand. The Pharisees, angry, taking offense to even the question. And assuming that, of course I'm born again. How dare you ask me that? That's the hardness of hearts. So recognize that everyone here was dead once. And if you are in Christ today, you are not. But if you do not know Christ, then you are dead spiritually and you need him. Secondly, the second implication is that you cannot be born again without God doing the work of giving you new life. Look again at what Jesus says in verses five and eight. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. We'll tackle those verses a lot more in detail to come, but what it essentially is saying that there is no way you can be born again through your own efforts. 
It is the work of the Spirit of God to actually change you and to cause you to know him and to see him. It has to be God at work in your heart. And by his Holy Spirit, he's the one who changes your heart, who takes that heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. You can't then decide to be a Christian. It's one of the reasons why we don't have an altar call. And I grew up with altar calls, and perhaps some of you as well, where we uh, ask you, you know, after this message, we have the music going, the lights go down, and I say, all right, everyone, put your heads down. And if you want to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, please raise your hand. And some of you raise your hand, and I see someone lifting their head up, and I say, no, no, put your head back down. Put your head back down. And, um, and then I ask you to come forward, and then we pray for you. And There's two sides to this, but essentially it's founded on the idea that we don't ultimately decide to follow Jesus. Now, I know there is uh, the song that says, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I love that song. We should sing that song. But deciding to follow Jesus happens because the Holy Spirit opens your heart so that you can decide to follow Jesus. And he does the work of changing you and shaping you so that you actually want to love him and follow him. But we don't on our own say, I'm going to be a Christian. Now, there are many things that we do decide to do. We decide to go to church. You decide to read the Bible. You decide to have a quiet time or devotions. You decide, you decided perhaps some of you this year to say, I'm going to read the Bible more this year. I'm going to evangelize across the street to my neighbor. I'm going to serve the poor. I'm going to go on missions. You can even decide to martyr yourself, but all of those things you can do without any change of your heart to know Christ. All of these things are possible with just your effort. And whenever you think about that, you have to think, okay, whatever I can do physically, whatever I can do in my mind, that's because I can put my effort into it, my will into it. But there is one thing that you cannot do regardless of your will or your effort, and that's be born again. Think about it this way. You were not conceived because you decided it's time to be born. You didn't tell before you were born as you were in, uh, just not even in existence, to suddenly say, you know, mom and dad, today is the day. I'm going to be born today. That's not how it works. You didn't bring your parents together to make your birth happen. And Jesus doesn't use this metaphor randomly or haphazardly. It's actually a very solid parallel metaphor to our new birth. He wants us to know that you cannot decide to be born again. You need God to do the work. He brings you new life. This means then your religious acts. They do not make you to be born again. They are responses. They're fruits of you being born again. Again, I don't want to discourage the, the value of coming on Sunday and hearing God's word and hearing the gospel or going and sharing the gospel with somebody or doing whatever it takes. But 
always remember that in of itself does not save anyone. It definitely does not save you. An implication of this is you are not a Christian because your parents are Christians. And you are not a Christian because your great-great-great-great-grandfather planted churches a long ago in some faraway land. And so you have this spiritual heritage, and now you're a Christian because your great-great-great-great-grandfather was this great church planter and did all these great things for the Lord. That doesn't save a single soul and definitely doesn't save you. You're not a Christian because your grandmother was a martyr and she loved Jesus. All you need to do is look at the Bible and see that it is possible to have the same parents and yet you have two people and one person absolutely knows the Lord and the other one totally doesn't. All you need to do is look at Abraham's line, Jacob, Isaac, and the line of David and you see Some kids know the Lord, some do not, and have no heart for him whatsoever. This should free you, actually, as parents. And again, it's not to minimize the value of family worship, having your kids read scripture. But if you're trying to force your kids to read the Bible or bribe them, you know, I'll give you $1,000 if you write the whole Bible out. Can there be a value in it? Yes. But if you think somehow that that's going to automatically mean your child is a believer, you're sorely mistaken. There's nothing that they can physically or you can physically do that can change their heart. I I have to constantly go back and forth because you're going to say, well, then should I do nothing? And I say, no, no. There is value to reading the Bible. We place ourselves before the Lord, but we never trust in and of itself, that work by which we turn to Christ. So memorizing scripture, reading, memorizing 100,000 verses, going to a Christian school, that certainly doesn't save anyone. It doesn't save someone more than going to a non-Christian school. Going to a Christian school might actually lead to maybe more of a moral child, but not necessarily a born-again child. Definitely not. Having Christian parents, it's a blessing. But it doesn't automatically equate salvation, being born again. Born again is solely a work of the Holy Spirit. This means that we should pray. I mean, really, that's what we have before us. It's not a small thing. Because our God is a gracious God and he loves us. He says in John 15, 7, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given you. We have the right to ask as children of God to say, Lord, my mother doesn't know the Lord, doesn't know you. Please save her. And it is God's sovereign will, if he should so will it, to do so. But God is gracious. Many times he does. So often whole households will turn to the Lord when one person turns to Christ. You know why? It's because God is gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. He hears our prayers. And so never underestimate the power of God loving and delighting in you and through Christ hearing your prayers and answering them. So it is not going to be in and of itself the prayer and the act of it, but it's our identity in him and who he is.
that he decides, I will answer your prayer. I'd love to answer your prayers. The good news is also this. It is possible for you to live the most godless life ever. You could have cursed God vehemently. You could have been drunk every day of your life. You could be on drugs every day and completely out of your mind, mentally insane, on taking all sorts of drugs and so out of it. You could have gambled away your whole family's well-being. You could have sold your body to any man or woman who would take you. You could have murdered someone or numerous people. And right up to your deathbed, you can still be born again. This is God's grace. The thief on the cross teaches us this reality. Nicodemus teaches us this reality. So here's the challenge for us is that we are, for most of us, we are align ourselves more with Nicodemus than we do the thief on the cross. With Nicodemus, though, and the thief on the cross, they're actually in the same place. You have to see that, the irreligious and the religious. Both do not know Christ. Both are not born again. And yet, God mercifully saves them both. This is the reality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The work done at the cross is for everyone because of God's kindness. And no one, no one is beyond his mercy. Remember Nicodemus. Here in John chapter three, he's confused. He doesn't get it. But at the cross, when he is risked, risking everything to take Jesus' body to prepare him for burial, you really sense Nicodemus finally gets it. He was born again. What was most important to him was not his Jewish heritage, being a Pharisee, being a leader, being educated, being wealthy. All of that was secondary, tertiary, to Christ on that cross. And when you are born again, he is everything to you. Everything else, your, your children, your spouse, your parents, your wealth, your career, your reputation, your achievements, your status, all of that is, as the Apostle Paul says, rubbish, trash. It's nothing compared to Christ himself. When you take the bread and the wine today, you do so remembering this truth. I hope when you come to it, you say, Lord, there is no way that I can be worthy of this just because I try harder or because I'm here on Sunday. In fact, this act in and of itself does not save me, as we often say every time. The only thing that saved me is you sovereignly decided to save me. You gave me new life, and I'm born again because of you and you alone. If this is your first time at church, or perhaps you've been attending your whole life, may you ask the question, am I born again? My friends, don't let this day pass by without asking the Lord that question. And know that that is a good question to ask. And he will answer it. He will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your promise that it is in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, we are born again. That is the sovereign work of your spirit. It is not going to be because we try hard, because we have come to church today, because we try to live a moral good life. 
our goodness never makes us righteous enough. It will always fall short. But it is this very work done on that cross that we celebrate through the bread and the wine of this communion that we remember your kindness to us. And you save us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of your great mercy. As we come to this table, O Lord, may we come with humility and a real desire and delight to make you the Lord of our lives. We thank you, Father. Thank you for your wondrous work. We pray this in Jesus' name.